I'm Charlie Hipwood, CEO of Mass Ventures. And I'm Stacy Swider, an investor at Mass Ventures. And we welcome you to the Fundable Founder, where we'll be exploring relevant topics for technology entrepreneurs to help them succeed in raising capital and in growing their businesses. As a founder who started and ran three companies, I didn't know what I didn't know when I first set out. <laughs> but you eventually figured things out, right? For the most part, through trial and error and mentorship. But now as a VC, I'm frequently advising entrepreneurs on the same topics. So Stacy and I are here to share that earned wisdom with you, along with the experts that we interview on a variety of subjects. We are. The roadmap to a successful startup is at your fingertips. So turn up the volume and grab the keys to success for your fundable founder journey. All right, welcome to another episode of The Fundable Founder. I'm here today with Raheem Morris, founder and CEO at Surge. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Yeah, it's exciting to have you on. I, I've been a big fan for a long time. So um, why don't we start by uh, you telling us your elevator pitch. What is Surge? Yeah, Surge, what we're building is a liquid universal network for hourly employees in which anyone can work at any place and at any time. Our targeted employers are QSRs, quick service restaurants, things like McDonald's and Wendy's and Taco Bell. What we do is we get in contact with their former employees and their former applicants, reach out to them, offer them full-time, part-time roles and roles on a temporary basis, returning former employees back to their companies and making sure that companies are saving thousands of dollars per hire that they make through our platform. That's fantastic. And, and what kind of traction have you gotten with the business? What are, how many employees and employers do you have on the platform? Yeah, over the last 35 weeks, we have massed 40 customers on search wow. on our product that we're delivering to customers right now, which we call the Future Employee Relationship Manager. And we have about 200,000 job seekers that are on our platform that we use as leads to make sure that we can stack these stores. Awesome. And, and I imagine yeah, that, um, you know, this is especially important. You never thought you were creating this business going into a pandemic, but especially important for helping people get back to work and helping these businesses get back uh, off the ground in a lot of cases. Yeah, exactly that. You know, all these stores, they closed down once a pandemic happened. Uh, and actually, we had a business model before that relied on stores being open. Uh, and so uh, the product that we're delivering right now is a new product that we created uh, that we always had in our roadmap, but was especially relevant given the pandemic. And companies are reopening. And who are the best people to come back to stores when people are reopening, when companies are reopening? It's their former employees who have been trained already that can come in and hit the ground running. So yeah, it's, uh, it's resonating right now, our, our messaging, uh, and, and companies are really picking it up. And important, right? You're making a difference in the world with this business, which is great. So uh, yeah. why don't you tell us your the origin story of Surge? Why did you decide to become an entrepreneur? Why did you decide to focus on this market? Yeah, uh, I found that Surge because of my personal story. Uh, it starts uh, a bit way back and I have a 10-hour version of a beer one of these <laughs> days, uh, but I'll give it the 60-second uh, 60, 60 version right now. Uh, when I was 14, my mom was a single parent her employer gave her an ultimatum. Uh, she was given the ultimatum of working the morning shift or she no longer had a job anymore. When that happened, I had to take on more family responsibilities. One of those things was to take my little brother to school every single day. This made me late all the time. 
this domino to missing entire days of school. I eventually dropped out of high school and began working hourly jobs over the course of the next nine years, most of them minimum wage, often two or three at a time to make ends meet for me and, and my family. Uh, I eventually went to high school when I was 18, graduated within a year, and then four and a half years later, I graduated magna cum laude from Cornell. Great. And I've had this resume that looks as if I come from a much different background than, than what I've come from, because uh, I went to uh, GE after I graduated, I worked at Google, and I've gotten, uh, I've earned my MBA from Harvard about two and a half years ago now. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so, you know, you're, you're one of those founders who you were, you were in the shoes of your end employees here, right? You, you were someone who worked in the quick service restaurant industry, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can tell you, I can't tell you how many days I came home from Taco Bell and all the ingredients is kind of gross, but all the ingredients that you use to fill the taco, it always ends up on the ground. And so yep. when you go home, you have all these all this food in the creases of your of your shoes and you just <laughs> knock them out every yeah. single night. I can imagine. Uh, and so, uh, uh, yeah. and uh, also too, I um, still remember some of the weights of some of the food at Taco Bell. Like for example, a hard taco is 2.9 ounces. A soft taco is 3.6. <laughs> Quesadilla, I believe, is 10.8. Uh, and so uh, this knowledge retains, or you retain it for a long time. And it just speaks to the, the power that we're able to, uh, to not only give to employees and say that the skills and knowledge that you have is valuable. And that's the reason why companies want you back because of your knowledge. Exactly, uh, right? Like you, you could walk into a Taco Bell tomorrow and probably with 10 minutes of training on their cash register, be a productive employee. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then maybe not even a, just a Taco Bell. You could probably do it at a, a Burger King or a Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever, right? Because yeah. many of it, yeah. a lot Absolutely. of it is the same. Yeah. And you think about your day to day work at these employers, it's a lot of rote memorization. And you do it so many times that that knowledge becomes indelible. And it's and so you, and so you decided to launch Surge to, was it more to help the employers? or the employees? And what was the real pain point you were trying to solve? Yeah, the uh, the pain point, it's to help both. I know that's the, uh, the convenient answer. At the same time, it was generally to help both. And the uh, the pain point, I think your question was, what, what is the pain point that we're solving? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the pain point that we're solving is that there are more than enough people to work jobs. At the same time, employers, they can't find people. So you go into any hourly employer, they're understaffed chronically, about 50% of their opening hours. And at the same time, you have 33 million people who employers have invested billions of dollars in training um, that are eligible or, and, and available to work these jobs. They're just not able to make that match work. And this is a $155 billion problem in the United States. And then you're also connecting all those, you're, you're, you're creating a network of those employees as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, think about hourly employee, they're going and they're bouncing among different hourly employers in, in the same way that I did, from Taco Bell to Hooli Hands to, to Pizzeria Unos. They're, they're going through employers and they, they have this, this training, this knowledge, but then after at the end of three years, you think about 100% turnover at the end of three years, they have knowledge from three employers and, right. and so what eventually we want to do is to have this employee be able to work at those multiple employers uh given their past experience and create those channels among employers in the way that we're the metal man 
um, uh, that make sure that all the players in the market are, are successfully staffed and that competition drives. Great. So let's go back. Let's walk it back to when you really started to think about fundraising. What was your what was your initial strategy for, you know, how far did you feel like you needed to get the business with traction of customers, MVP product, whatever it might be, and when did it start going out to investors? And then also, you know, tell us a little bit about your strategy there. Did you, did you raise some friends and family? Did you bootstrap for a while? Did you um, go out and raise some angel money? Like, if you can remember back at that, that time, what was your real strategy? Yeah. So my real strategy in the beginning was no strategy. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a common theme on the fundable founder. Oh yeah. It's, uh, you know, when I say I walked in and had all the answers, I didn't have any answers. Uh, first couple of meetings were not, uh, didn't turn any fruit, <laughs> but, uh, you know, over time, um, you know, I began to develop relationships with other founders who had successfully raised money. Uh, a lot of those connections were made through accelerators. Yeah. We had been to, I think, two or three accelerators, either through the school, uh, through my MBA program, uh, or things like Underscore that has a founder uh, uh, a founder accelerator program uh, there. Uh, and through these programs, I met other founders, understood what they were doing to be successful, and more or less emulated what they what they told me um, to, uh, to success, to, to raise the money. So how many, how long did it take you to raise, you know, your, to, to raise your first round? How many meetings do you think you had? How many people did you pitch? Yeah. So the very first round, we have a unique fundraising journey in the way that we went to a competition in Houston called the Rice Business Plan Competition. Okay. And I, even though it's atypical, I think that this experience, it still conveys what is important when thinking about fundraising, what you need to do. Uh, so this, this, this tournament, this, this competition is three days. Uh, you do your pitch four times in front of a room of about 60 seasoned investors. Okay. And so you pitch for 15 minutes and then for maybe 30, 45 minutes, maybe it's probably close to 15 minutes. It feels like 30 minutes. Uh, they all give you constructive feedback. Yep. And so we're getting all this, this useful, valuable, valuable information from 60 investors. And I would go home and iterate my pitch, practice it maybe 10 or 15 times, come back. Those same 60 investors were actually, they, they interchanged, they mixed them up. Another 15 minutes of really good, helpful feedback from 60 investors and then iterating on that over the course of three days. At the end of the four days here, the pitch was solid. And so I came back to Boston, was able to raise that next round of funding fairly quickly actually, but it's only because I effectively ran through 60 investors Got in three days. <laughs> yeah, three days. <laughs> that sounds exhausting. <laughs> Super exhausting. We got second. <laughs> and if you do that and sort of have like a longer drawn out process meeting 60 investors, I guarantee you at the end, your, uh, your, your pitch is going to be very solid. And it was. So uh, I want to unpack that a little bit because that's yeah. a really unique um, story about fundraising. And it's great that you're getting all this feedback in a short period of time. And, and by the end of it, your pitch was really honed. And a lot of people do yep. that over the course of three or four months, meeting with 60 investors. But, uh, but often you're getting different advice from different people about how to tell your story, things to emphasize, um, you know, traction or, you know, talk about the platform aspect or talk about this or talk about that. How do you synthesize advice and, and take in what you think is, how do you decide what's good advice, what not to listen to and how to go with your own gut? 
Yeah, yeah. There's there's two main themes that I go along here. The first, just good and bad advice. Uh, good advice that you get has a causal nature to it. Okay. Uh, in the way that if you get the advice that oh you need to I don't know in, in, increase the amount of uh, wages that you're offering the platform in order to get uh, additional people to apply. Um, I, that's there's just a connection between the advice we're giving you and, and and the output that you want. Uh, sometimes you get this advice that's more correlative, <laughs> uh, and so that's not as good advice. The example I give isn't the best example, but I think just causation and correlation yep. just helps me to think about what is good advice and what is bad advice. And uh, the second thing here is that as founders, we're experts. We're going to these rooms as experts. We know our business better than anyone else. And you know, thinking about my personal story, uh, going to investor, I'm the one who has actually experienced these jobs, not only from a crew member level, but also training. And so it's not that we take, I take the advice as the, with a grain of salt. It's more the case that how does this fit into my existing body of knowledge? And, and that's how I think about uh, uh, making sure that the advice that I get, um, that, that I'm able to use it in a way that's useful for, for me and the business. So you said you got a lot of great advice from that plant, that program, because you came back to Boston and raised around pretty quickly thereafter. I mean, what, what was some of the best advice you got from that group down at Rice um, that you remember, whether it was related specifically to your deck or related to how you talk about your business? Yeah, yeah. The first one is, I alluded to this a bit, uh, it's that you're the expert about your yeah. business. <laughs> and if you go into a room and you are competent and you know that you have all the right facts and figures and data about your business. Uh, it's just to make sure that you're conveying that in a way that not necessarily you're putting them, the investor in, in a position that's subjugated to you, but you're coming into that meeting as a meeting of peers. Uh, yep. It is very easily to become intimidated uh, when you're fundraising, especially you know pre-seed, uh, especially if you've never met with an investor before. And if you go into that meeting thinking of you as peers, as exchanging uh, uh, thoughts about how to create the biggest business that you possibly can, then the then the, the outcome for the meeting, uh, given that you've made the case well, <laughs> uh, uh, is going to be uh, uh, will be positive. Uh, I think that's so, great advice. Yeah. yeah, that's the most important one that I've gotten uh, through this through this journey. Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, smaller bits of advice, you know. A lot of them I picked up myself, just you know, learning through the three days of that tournament, uh, just understanding that repetition is the key to making sure that you can convey that confidence in these types of meetings. The uh, the one thing that I have to continue to remind myself is uh, exactly that. Um, it's because you know, as CEO, you're doing a lot of external things, a lot of internal things. It's very easy to get too mired in, in the details because. I have an inside view. And so yep. trying to abstract that, but then abstracting that and also seeming confident when oftentimes you're still figuring things out for yourself in the business. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Um, were there any things that didn't work well through the fundraise that uh, you think back on and you go, oh man, I can't believe I used to talk about that or this or the other thing that you would advise people against doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a ton of mistakes that I've made <laughs> in these uh, in pitches. The 
whenever I've had a bad pitch, it was, it was always because I didn't practice beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can go into symptoms of what that looks like either you know i even like i didn't show up on time because it was very difficult to find that office that's a lack of preparation (laughs) um uh, all these things uh all the things i could tell you that i think a lot of founders would tell you they're all symptoms of not properly preparing and really iterating your pitch all of them and how much time would you spend researching the the investor or their organization before you'd pitch them yeah, um, so I have a competitor, I would spend a great deal, um, especially if they had either experience on boards that were competitors, we're not competitors necessarily, because I wouldn't be talking to the direct ones at least, um, but companies are in adjacent fields uh, or they were targeting the industry that that I'm currently building surge into. Uh, I would make sure that I looked at their portfolio companies, search the firm and their focus areas and, and just making sure that I can see my company being good fit for not only the firm, but also the partner that I would suspect would lead a deal uh, right. uh, for search. Yeah. How, how would you, so a lot of times founders, um, I hear founders say, well, you know, the venture capitalist just doesn't understand my industry or, or, or the problem I'm trying to solve. And I, I got to imagine it, it, in your case, this is a, it, it's a, it's obvious, right? Like if you never worked in quick service restaurants, you probably don't understand the problem here, right? And I'm guessing a lot of VCs probably didn't work in quick service restaurants. I never did. I worked at a golf driving range would be about the equivalent where I was using a cash register and stuff, but I didn't come home covered in, in uh, shredded cheese and lettuce. Um, you know, how, how would you what was your strategy for putting them, the VCs in the shoes of, of these people that you're trying to solve their problem? Yeah, yeah. Uh, often I would ask that they actually have had a job in either fast food or hourly uh, uh, workplace. Uh, and then we can sort of get into the, the real kernels of why what we're building is special and unique and differentiated. Um, but it, it backfired twice because people said they worked in the industry, but didn't. I found out in the end. Um, <laughs> and so I, I asked two questions now on surface one. Um, uh, however, outside, um, outside of that, uh, one of my, and I actually I forget the channel on YouTube, um, but the, uh, what they do is they take an expert, let's say in neuroscience, and then they go ahead and explain the neuroscience to someone who's four years old, someone who's 10 years old, someone who's 18, someone who's in the industry, someone who's also a PhD. Yep. It's just interesting to see the way that they explain it to all of these different types of people. And as a founder, you need to have your story for the investor who's a four-year-old, for the investor who's the eight-year-old, someone who has worked in the industry. You need all of those responses. Uh, and you need to practice each of those types of responses depending on the investor and their experience in your industry. That's awesome advice. Uh, so we're just about running out of time here. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you would like to pass along? Uh, yeah, any other advice you received or best practices? Just words, last words of advice for the entrepreneurs out there. Yeah. Um, the, if you have an interesting business, it will be funded. Uh, if you are able to show that you have the ability to create outsized returns, despite all of the different things that uh, and data that we were able to see about either underrepresented founders or, or, or women raising money, uh, everyone, investors, or rather investors in particular, uh, they're looking for an outsized return. And if you can create the case that your business will do that, then you will get funded. 
that's awesome advice. And so I like to finish by asking one final question. And that is, how would you describe yourself in one word? Is that part? Oh, yeah, that is part of the questions. Um, so the thing that comes... There's no right or wrong answer here, Rahim. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the one question I, I didn't expect, or, and I should have expected that question. <laughs> um, let's see, right off the bat, one word. The easy one is I, I am... I'm empathetic. I'm a compassionate guy. Compassion. Actually, Raheem means to be compassionate. Uh, and I am. Uh, it's about my business, about my employees, about the mission that we have as a company, the vision that I want to achieve, uh, the people, the stakeholders that are important for that to happen. Uh, I have compassion for because this is the reason why I have built this business to help those people. That's awesome. I, I agree. You are a very compassionate person. So you're, you're very self-aware there. Uh, before we jumped on this call today, I described you as a man of many talents. And so that is why it's hard for you to come up with one word, but I think compassion really sums it up well. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, John. So uh, thank you so much for being on The Fundable Founder today. I really enjoyed hearing about your story. I think you gave some great advice out there uh, for the entrepreneurs uh, who are looking to raise money. So thank you so much, Raheem. Oh, don't forget to be Charlie. It's been really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fundable Founder. Please go to our website at mass-ventures.com for more information on Mass Ventures and where you can also find other episodes just like this.